Good evening everyone. Moadim lesimcha, we are now in Chola Moed Sukkot. Usually I don't make lectures in Chola Moed. It's a lousy weather anyway today. So if there's no way you can go in Chola Moed, you might as well learn Torah, no? That's what it says. Chetziola Hashem, Chetziola Hem, Chetziola Hashem. Chola Moed, it's not a break. Like some people think, oh, we're in break now from the yeshiva. It's half for the family, half for Hashem. So since the, uh, you moved into this new apartment, and Baruch Hashem, it's a good location here, and uh, we'll give you some advice. On First, we do Hanukkah Tabayit. When we make a lecture in the house, when you move in, you put mezuzot, you get rid of all the negative energy of the place from the people who live here before. If it was Jewish people, if they were religious people, there's not that much to worry. Especially if they kept the mezuzot, you come, you put yours, you take theirs, it's fine. If it was not religious Jews, who makes a lot of sins in the house, then there's something to worry about. That's why the Hanukkah bite helps. If it was a goy, depend what kind of a goy. If it's a goy who worship idols, like Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, Hindus, from India, you know, kind, this kind of goyim, then he has a lot to worry about, the most. Because the negative energy of their idols, they put their Buddha in a closet and things like this, bring a total curse on a place. You have to, it's even better to repaint the place, get rid of all the energy that they leave. And if it was a regular goy, such as Arab or someone not religious goy, so it's, it's, it's the same thing. If another religious guy makes sins in a house, also make bad energy, but not like idols worshipping. If it was a Christian who put all these statues of JC and his mother and the rest of the gang, also idol worshipping. It's also a problem. If it was a, a Muslim Arab doesn't put any idols, pray to God. So then it's the least of the problem out of all the list that I mentioned. So basically, if he was a religious Muslim, real one, afraid of God, then they doesn't, they usually don't make that many sins in the house. One way or the other, you don't know the history of the place. Could be the prior one, the one before, it could be 50 years ago. Always the minhag is to do Hanukkah Tabayit. Also, I'm going to give you a few advices based on the mystical part of the Torah, what we call Kabbalah. First, when you move into a new house, it's good to take a plate with salt and leave it for a few days. Put a plate with salt. You leave it. Not everything I can give you a rational explanation. Some of the things is above human logic. Uh, usually when it's called segula, segula comes from the word mesugal. It comes from, in a Torah, it says amsgula. You are Amsgula. You are a nation with spiritual abilities. And then you hear a lot in Hebrew the word Sgulot, Sgulot. Uh, one danger is that when people starting to do all kinds of Sgulot, they become like addicted to it. And the danger is that they neglect the real thing, which is the Torah and the mitzvot, thinking, ah, I have this Sgula and I have Sgula. It's like a shortcut. It's like a bonus. It's like a person, he, well, he does a job, I don't know, he's supposed to make $2,000 on a job, and in the end he makes a $30 tip. Nobody wants to leave the $2,000 prize that you charge and get the tip, no? But today there are many people who are very busy with the tips, they forget the actual salary. 
And that's what I'm afraid. That's why I usually never likes to bring sgulot in uh, lectures, because I know the mind of the people. So, oh, the rabbi said this and this can help with this. This and that can help with that. What do I need? I have, I'll do all this gulot, very easy. Do this, do that. It takes two, three minutes each. Sometimes it's very inexpensive. And I'm good. So I want to make a clarification here that this gulot will not help someone who is a wicked person. person go against Hashem, is violating Shabbat, is stealing, is doing all kinds of sins, and he thinks this gulot will save him, he lives in a, in a dream. Sgulot is for ordinary, normal, righteous people who try to do everything. And that's like I said, like a tip, like a bonus. It's like an ex, it's extra. It can maybe help make, make things faster. In overall, whatever Hashem decides on Rosh Hashanah, it cannot change that much. That's it. It's decided. It's already decided how much you're going to make this year. It's decided if you get married or not get married. All these things are decided already. But we can move it 5%, 10% up and down based on the behaving that we do per year. Whatever we're going to do this year, good or bad, is going to affect us in the next judgment day. Don't think, oh, since it was decided, I might as well not waste my time. What's the point of praying? What's the point of begging? What's the, pray or the point of making tshuva during the year? If I didn't do it on the month of Elul, Rosh Hashanah already came, Hashem already had reached the verdict. He decided for me everything. What's the point of trying so hard? It's no point. It was decided. Don't be a fool. You want to prepare your own next year. The next Rosh Hashanah, the verdict is decided based on what you did the entire year. What do you think? You're getting a final mark. Like you have a semester. The teacher have all the behaving of every day of the semester, like in school. And in the end of the year, he writes in the, your total mark. It doesn't decide based on the last exam only. It takes the entire average of the entire year, every transaction you, you had in your life. So even if maybe you miss the opportunity that you had in the month of Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Kippur, and now Sukkot, now from now until Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah Hashem will review retroactive the entire past year, which is this year now, and decide what to give you. So if you see you behave good, if you see you pray a lot, you give a lot of tzedakah, you learn a lot of Torah, and he can decide, you know what, it's time for you to get married, you deserve it. People take it for granted, marriage. Uh, everyone gets married. First of all, not true. Many people don't get married. There's many, many people, millions of people who die single. There's tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people who die without children. There's hundreds of millions of homeless people. Just in India alone, you have millions of homeless people sleeping on a sidewalk. Whatever we have here, people leave, they take it for granted, you know? So if you compare yourself to the majority of the people in the world, you see that no matter how bad it is, you are still on the top of a pyramid. I'm talking people who live here in New York, they have a place to sleep, a nice mattress, place to sit, they can afford a telephone, can afford some you know, food, can even order some food. You know, they take it for granted. Ah, you compare me to the people that I know that lives in these fancy mansions, they are 1% of the people in the world. What about the rest of the world? Most of them struggle. You go to some, I always say, you go to some Arab countries, for every million people you have 10 lucky ones and 990 millions that are barely having food. All these farmers, floods, floods, floods away all the rice, all the vegetables. In China, floods, hurricanes, all kinds of things. People live in, in Sukkot. We are now in a, in a week of Sukkot. 
I live in a sukkah, the last two days non-stop rain. On my way here, there was tons of floods to get here. It took three hours to get here, just to get here because of so much traffic. So the sukkah is already half crushed from this massive amount of rain. And there are people who live in a sukkah their the entire life. China, Bangladesh, or India. One little wind, their entire belongings floods all over. You don't really see it. You don't believe me. Go natural disasters. See what happens every moment. Every moment in the world. There's another 100,000, another 20,000 people who the next month will, will sleep in the mud. Everything that they had is gone. But we always complain, complain. Oh, my car is only BMW, Rabbi. My friend is a Mercedes. Oh, I'm so upset, you know. People upset. Oh, I only have one bedroom apartment. It's very hard to raise three children in one bedroom apartment. Two generations ago, our grandparents, even those that their children making fortune now, when they came to this country or they came to Israel from Syria, from Iraq, from all these places, where did they live? 13 people in one room. That's it. It was like a studio apartment. 13 people lives. Everyone sleeps on, one on top of the other. When Rabbi Ovadia Yosef came to, to Israel from Iraq, they all lived in one room. When he wanted to learn Torah, they were, were mopping the floor. He had to stand on a chair. <laughs> Standing on a chair for an hour while they're cleaning the house. There's no, way, no place to, to be. It was so crowded. Kids, this, that. No, you stand on a chair and learn. In the middle of the room, on the corner, you stand on a chair because they clean the floor. There's nowhere to hide. Where are you going to go? That's how they lived, you know? So under the beds, it was storage. <coughs> you know, you should see how they, I mean, I, rem I still remember when I was a kid going to the grandparents in these poor neighborhoods of Israel, how they used to live in a very Arab Middle Eastern mentality. One huge closet, everything piled up on top of everything. That's how it was. And uh, there's no, no room to, to store in a the refrigerator. There was a tiny refrigerator. If guests are coming, at the moment the guests showed up, in Israel you don't have to make five appointments until you come. You, you know, you can just show up. It's very interesting. <laughs> the Americans don't understand how the Israeli knocks on their door sometimes. How can it be they just show up without making appointment and confirmation? And in Israel people just show up. 13 people just showed up. <laughs> what do you do? You run to the store to get. Well, right away, you take the, the, the cart, you buy watermelon, some melons, some cucumber, whatever you need. At the, at the moment, the guests are in the house, you send one of the people right away to the market to bring food, because there's no way to store. That's how it was. So let's move on. So now we are in Sukkot. Sukkot comes right after Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, because it's going out of your comfortable house into the exile. Someone who sits the entire week in a sukkah, like the Gaon Mivilna, didn't want to go out of the sukkah for one moment. It's the more you are in a sukkah, according to the Gaon Mivilna, every minute you're in a sukkah, it's a mitzvah. It's not the halacha. The halacha is that only when you need to eat and to sleep, you need a sukkah. You need to eat bread and mezonot. But other than that, you can manage without a sukkah, really, technically. If you don't go to sleep, and if you don't eat bread and, and uh, mezonot, you only drink coffee, some fruits, you can manage without sukkah. But uh, according to the Gaon Vilna, every minute you're in a sukkah, it's like under the Shekhinah. Because what's the sukkah resemble? It's two opinions in a Gemara. One is for the clouds that Hashem made to protect the Jews when they came out of Egypt. They were in the desert for 40 years. It was horrible sun, very strong sun in the desert. And there's nowhere to hide, no shade, no trees. 
So you need you need the shade. How are you gonna get it? So there were special clouds, and the clouds bring some humidity and some breeze. It's like a free air condition. Not today. You want to put the air condition, you get a thousand dollars bill by the end of the month, because you only wanted to breathe a little bit. But they had free air condition and also was dry clean, clean their clothes. And the Torah say the Torah praised them for not having to change their clothes for forty years. Not like today, every four minutes, your wife changes her clothes. Just before she goes on a wedding, 15 outfits. This one, no, this one, maybe combination, take this one, this clip, that one. Five hours before the wedding. By the time you come, the chuppah is finished, until she decided what clothes to put on. The nation of Israel, they didn't have to change the clothes. The Torah says, you have to thank me so much that you didn't need to change your clothes for 40 years. <laughs> I can't tell your wife, I have a sgula for you. Here is this outfit. I have a special trick. I'm going to make a spell. You don't have to change this outfit for the next 40 years. <laughs> the next day, you're going to get a letter. Come to Beidin, give your wife a get. <laughs> but the Torah is speaking about it as a positive thing, which means the need of a person to constantly change the color of his clothes and all these things that we have today, it's not really a good thing. Well, you already got used to it. We don't see anything bad with this. But in the time of the Exodus of Egypt, why Akarosh Baruch Hu didn't make the, the clothes change their color? It's a problem for him. If he wanted, he can make the design of the clothes change every week, not to get the person bored. Today, if the Exodus of Egypt would be today, then he would do it, because he know how empty the people are. But in the time of the Exodus of Egypt, nobody cared about the clothes. As long as it's cover, it's modest, Baruch Hashem. So going to a sukkah, it's clearing away all the sins that we still have left. Even though maybe Hashem accepted our repentance and He forgave us, but still there are some pending punishments. So instead of giving us these punishments, he sends us to the exile. That's why Sukkot comes right in a wrong time of the year. Sukkot should have been in Pesach. Sukkot and Pesach should have been one holiday. While you're eating matzah inside the Sukkah. Right? Because the Gemara say, why we have Sukkot? First, we sat in actual Sukkot in the desert, which was like tents, combination like a Sukkah, temporary house that you take apart and move it with you as you move on. And there was the clouds. Two opinions in Gemara, both of them correct. Both of them happened in reality. There were the clouds and there was Sukkot. So, but since it's in a time of the spring, the exodus of Egypt is in a time of Passover, around April. So, so we should have been sitting in a Sukkah and eating matzah and doing Lela Seder in a Sukkah. It would be perfect, no? Why it came now, five days after uh, Yom Kippur? Two reasons. One is because in reality, after the scene that the golden calf, the clouds disappeared. And the clouds only came back five days after Yom Kippur. After Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, Salachti Kidvarecha, Moshe was 40, he was 120 days in the mountain. But the last period, the last 40 days, was from Rosh Chodesh Elul until Yom Kippur. And only after that he came down, the next day after Yom Kippur, and right after that the clouds came back. The cloud came back, this day will stay a day of schach. Schach, it's the cover of the sukkah, it's the main part of the sukkah. The walls of the sukkah can be made from anything you want, as long as it doesn't fly with the wind. 
if it's blankets, you have to stretch it, that it won't move more than three tfachim. If the blankets are moving more than three tfachim, it's shaking, then it's not a kosher sukkah. But plastic, aluminum, metal, uh, wood, anything you want to make the, the walls from, no, it's no problem. Whatever you want, canvas, whatever. But the schach can only be something natural who grows from the ground. And also the shade of the sukkah has to be more than the sun. If there's more sun than shade, then the, you're missing the purpose of the sukkah. It has to be that you're sitting under the shed because the clouds were making sheds if the sun goes in. And the shed should come from the schach, from the ceiling, not from the roof, not from the walls. That's why you're not allowed to make the sukkah too long. If it's more than 20 amot, which means more than 10 meter, more than 30 feet high, there's no chance that the shed comes from the ceiling. It's always going to come from the walls because it's very, very high. The sun always always light diagonals. If the walls is too high, no matter what direction the sun is, the shed comes from the walls and you're missing the purpose of the mitzvah. It has to come from the schach. That's... Yeah, well, if the, yeah, it's above. Yeah, but, but the, the, the idea is that the schach, also the schach cannot be too crowded. If it's so crowded that you cannot see even a little bit from the sky, it's also not good. It has to have a little bit space that you can see this in the sky. Okay, also, uh, you know, if a person is inside the sukkah, he has to make sure he has all the decorations, that he doesn't sit under the decorations. If the decoration is wide and it goes less than three tfachim from the ceiling, which is it's, it's going all the way down and you sit under that, it doesn't count you sit in a sukkah. Because you have to sit under the actual schach, which can be bamboo, it's better not to use, like they use in Israel, branches from the trees. They cut branches and they put on the top. It's kosher, but why it's not good? Because usually these branches are full of flies. And once you see it, it's dark. You don't have such light. It's like in a house. You don't see all these little mosquitoes that are very, very tiny black ones. They fall into the salad. They fall into the soup. And each one of them is five steaks of porks. Each one of them. So if you, uh, if you eat it, you don't really realize how many of them are falling. Uh, especially if it rained a few hours ago, so they died from the rain. Because they're very, very tiny. And then when, once it dry out, there's a little bit wind, and they fall into your food, and you eat it. And each one of them, even if they're dead, it's five different scenes from the Torah. The Torah used five or six, depending if it flies. Six different languages in the Torah. That's why you got to be very, very careful. No, so what you do, you just make, you use bamboos. They don't bring flies. You use bamboos or mats. Now, even if you have a natural mat that they use from bamboos, yeah, they have some mats from the floor or to hang on a wall, you cannot use it as a schach. Why? Because when they make it, it has to be made for schach. If it was made for the floor, then it's already not kosher for schach. So the go in Pakistan or in China, it's all depend when he started to manufacture the mat, what was in his mind. Is this, used, is this made for the floor? Is it made to hang on walls? Is it already made for different use of a schach? Not kosher for schach. But it was made for no purpose. You decide what you want to do with that, and it's kosher. And most of the schach we buy today costs a lot more than just a mat because it's made specially for schach. All these rugs that you roll, or the actual bamboos, you know, that's it. Uh, I always say to be Jewish is expensive, but don't worry. 
the parnasah comes directly from the Father in heaven. If you see that you're loyal, you care about the mitzvot, even if you're a poor family, you're going to see a lot of miracles. I know someone, a day before Sukkot, didn't have a sukkah. They have six children. day before, he didn't have sukkah. I said to myself, I hope Hashem is going to make a miracle for him. A kosher sukkah for the size of his family is more than $2,000. What happened? Guests came to me for sukkot, and one of them just at the table. I was worried about his family. How much you can help? You cannot help the whole world. So what happened is I was thinking, I was hoping that this guy will find a solution. So one of my guests say, well, actually tired because I work today. I built a sukkah for this family. I said to him, oh, they had a sukkah? He said, yeah. Call me a few hours before the Yom Tov if I can come help him to build the sukkah. Someone gave him a, almost a brand new sukkah, like $3,000 sukkah, bigger than mine. <laughs> so yeah, Hashem takes care of everyone. Why? A person wants to do mitzvah, he eats his heart, doesn't have the 3000 to spend. Hashem sent it to him. And so I always tell you, we have in our yeshiva guys who their entire income per month is $500 for the entire month. Some 800 some 1000 not more than that. And their wives wear jackets that are worth more than the entire monthly income. How can it be? Because the rich people buy and they are, they are bored, so they buy a lot of things. And most of them they don't wear. It stays with the tag. And after a while, they're thinking, what mitzvah should I do with the clothes instead of throwing it to the garbage? So they call, Rabbi, do you have anyone to give it to? We have a whole box. So you come, you take the box, you open it up, $800, $500, $300 sweaters, with the tags on it. <laughs> you understand? Some of them are not modest. Not, not modest enough for Jewish ladies. So you got to give it to the goyim. Which goyim you know? The cleaning people, that they come. So some cleaning people, their children get clothes, they go to their schools, it's in the poverty areas, and they wear things. And the next things, the school is thinking, these kids, probably their father is a real gangster. <laughs> the whole chain reaction, you know. Why? They wear this, all this brand name, you know. It got to a point that uh, I took my kids to swim, and uh, my son was wearing shorts that, in my opinion, doesn't even worth $5. It's made from nylon, whatever. So the rich kids over there in the pool, they say, wow, your son is wearing a $200 shorts. <laughs> I said, it doesn't even worth a dollar. To make it, it costs 20 cents in China. What's special about it? I say, yeah, yeah, all the wealthy kids buy the shorts. Well, look, I look at the shorts, I don't understand. Say, so, yeah, yeah, you want, I can show you on the internet. These shorts, more than $200, 200 250 Why? Somebody decided that this name is important. Religion. No one would know. No one would know. You just they decide. The, the Hilomina are not religious, they are very religious. Only by the brand name. Now, there's a question now. Let, let, let me ask you a question. Let's say a person made a beautiful suit that is nothing less than any designer. And he take a name of designer that doesn't worth a penny, and he put that on his suit. And now instead of two hundred dollars for a suit, he sell it for two thousand dollars. Is it kosher to do or no? It might be kosher, because the actual suit by that designer doesn't work. So the, the so the designer said to you, "It's not my fault that people are stupid. 
Why are they paying extra 1800 Because they want to show off. I gave him a reason to show off. I put the tag. They pay $200 for the suit and $1,800 for the stupid tag inside. Right? Because that's the only reason they pay. Because they, they didn't see the difference between my suit to this special brand name. There's no difference. It's the same quality, same everything. They just want to show off. I gave them a reason to show off. They got what they paid for. So it's a question if it's allowed or not. That's a big question. I don't know the answer. You know the answer, you tell me. Maybe I know, I don't want to tell you. But, <laughs> but just to give you an idea how foolish it gets. How foolish when a, when a person lives in a lie. All right, so, so the reason is that we celebrate Sukkot now. Like I said, the clouds came back, so it fell right now. Plus, it's right after Yom Kippur, so it's a great opportunity to repent. What other thing? The sukkah, sitting in a sukkah, it's also segula to live long life. What's the connection between sitting in a sukkah uh, to live long life? Also to get saved from sicknesses, from, from sufferings. Why? Because it says in Al-Acha, in Shulchan Aruch, it says in Gemara, Mitzta'er patur min ha-sukkah. Mitzta'er patur min ha-sukkah, because of the sukkah. Min can be from and can, can be because of. There's two ways to translate this word. If you translate it, min ha-sukkah, from the sukkah, then if you don't, if you suffer inside the sukkah, if it's raining, if it's cold, if it's too hot and humid, if there's flies, if there's bad smell, you're not obligated to sit in a sukkah. But there's another way to interpret this verse. Mitzta'er patur mina sukkah means because of the sukkah. When you sit in a sukkah, you, call, you go away from your comfortable home, you sit in a temporary home, Thanks to that, the, the tsar, the suffering, the agony goes away from your life. That's the secret of mitzta'er patur min asuka. Also, when a person sits inside the, the sukkah, it's also segula to live long life. Once he sits in the, in, inside the sukkah, thanks to that, I can, why? Because the Gemara says that in the, in the eight days of sukkot, the house, your house should be a temporary house for you, just to go take stuff from that, but not to live there. And the sukkah should be a permanent house. So the sukkah should be a permanent house. So when a person leaves his comfortable house and move into a, tem a temporary house, thanks to that, Mishamayim, they bless him to have longer life. Why? Because the, 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 the actually moving into an exile automatically adds to the life of a person instead of Chas Shalom die younger. This is what happened. Now we are speaking about moving into a new house. So when you move into a new house, like I say, put a plate, put some salt. Make sure you put kosher mezuzot. And also it says... That uh, house that uh, wine spilled on the floor, it's a sign of a blessing. When some wine, when a person pours and some drops of wine falls on the floor, also it's some, it's gula, that is gonna come blessing into this house. Or to eat grapes. It's Hanukkah bait, good to serve wine and to serve grapes, which means it's it will bring remedy to the house. Remedy to the house. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs>
it's not as good, but it's... Watermelon is very tasty. <laughs> and in some countries, some countries, watermelon is the drink. They, don't, they can't, like in India, you cannot drink, drink water. The water there are horrible, brown, with dirt. So you can either drink water, imported water from spring waters that comes from far away, which was probably expensive, or only eat watermelon all day. Because, you know, that's cheaper than water, you know? Anyway, so, also, also, uh, there is all kinds of Mishnayot. Do you have a Sidur of Shlosha Regalim? Sidur of three Regalim? Mahzor, Shesukot, yeah? If you can get it for me, yeah. I want to read to you some interesting. Also, we learn what we learn. How do we learn about this custom of Hanukkah Tabayit? How do we learn that we have Hanukkah come from the word Lachnoch, something new. So the first time you use it, it's called Hanukkah, Lachnoch, right? So when the Greeks destroyed, they, 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 they impured the, the oils, they burned some parts of Bet HaMikdash, they did riots, after they gone, the Maccabim kicked them, they needed to restart Bet HaMikdash, but it was all, pure, all impured from the impure Greeks. So they, re, they purified the entire place, and that's why it's called Hanukkah. Why? Because you re, it's like refreshed, refreshed the entire place, and prepared eight days it took to prepare new oil and to start the menorah. Everything starts from scratch. Same thing when a person moves into a house, is refreshing, it's a new start. And uh, we learn it from Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. We just read it yesterday in the Aftarah of, of the Yom Tov, not yesterday, in the last Yom Tov. Why? Because we say that Shlomo HaMelech built the first temple 3,000 years ago. And, thank you, when he came to open the, the he opened, the, he made the party. They wanted to do the party of entering Bet HaMikdash, the doors didn't open. Doors couldn't open the doors. It was like a miracle. The doors are locked, cannot enter. So he started to mention the names of all the righteous people who lived before him, from Moshe Rabbeinu all the way to his time. Every name he mentioned, nothing helped. In the end, he mentioned the name of his father, David, King David, and the door would open up. So from here, we learn a few things. First, we learn what we call Schut Avot, that if your father is a tzaddik and there's a stranger tzaddik, your father comes first. Because in the halacha it says, if you have to save your father or to save your rabbi, you have to save your rabbi before your father. If both of them are in jail, your father brought you to temporary life, your rabbi brought you to life of eternity. If you learn Torah from him, he gives you a ticket for life of eternity. So he's more important than your father. However, if your father is also a rabbi, so you have two skills. He has, is your father, which you naturally owe him gratitude and respect. Plus, he's a Talmud Chacham, so he has two reasons to respect him. And your rabbi has only one. He's not your biological father. So, you're, so since both of them Talmud Chachamim, and he's your father, then he comes first. Right? Father. Your father. If your father is a Talmud Chacham, but if your father is an ignorant Jew, so you owe him a lot, but your rabbi has come before him. If you find your wallet of your father or your wallet of your rabbi, you have to go and return the ones from your rabbi first. 
If you only have enough, enough money to redeem your father or your rabbi from the jail, he's captured by the robbers or whatever, they kidnap him, then you have to release your, father before, your, your rabbi before your father. So we see here that when Shlomo HaMelech mentioned the name of David HaMelech, the gates opened up. But there's a secret here. Why? First of all, David HaMelech was very anxious to build the first temple. He was very anxious. And Nathan Anavi, Nathan the prophet, Nathan in English, Nathan became Nathan. But the same person. He was the one who gave him the blessing to go and, get, and, and wish him that Hashem will help him to build the Bet HaMikdash. But when he, when he went to sleep that night, Hashem came and was upset at him. So who, gave, who told you to give him a blessing? The prophet could never imagine who is more worthy than this holy man, King David, to build the temple. Such a holy person, such a humble person, writes Irotilim. He has the Holy Spirit on him all the time. You know, I mean, who deserves it? The Mashiach will come from his descendants. Who deserves more than him? So if he's alive and his son is alive, he has few sons, how would I think that his son is more worthy than him? So the answer is no, it's not true. He was right about his uh, opinion. He gave the blessing to the person who was the number one in the world at that time. But he didn't take into consideration that his hand spilled blood in a war, holy war, 100% righteous. He did not kill anyone that doesn't deserve to die. It was in a war. But since the hand spilled blood, he couldn't build a temple. Hashem say hands that spill any blood. Same thing today. If an Israeli Kohen goes to a war and he kills some terrorist, he kills some Hezbollah terrorist, it's a very big mitzvah. But if you murdered, already it's a problem to do Birkat Kohanim. You can join the Kohanim, but if you're the only Kohen, it's a big argument if you can even do Birkat Kohanim or not. Why? Your hands killed someone. A, ter a terrorist, a Nazi, mitzvah. You killed someone, mitzvah. The hands spill blood, it's not so simple. So what's going on here? So David Amelech, when he was alive, in his life, he suffered a lot. If you learn about his life, you cannot stay cold and not be impressed from the life that he had. He was a shepherd, hiding, everyone thought he's a bastard, a mamzer, an illegitimate boy. You know, his brothers turned their back to him. He had a very hard childhood. Plus, later when he became a king even, he still, still had miserable life. Well, what he was doing, checking the cloth of the women, if they're pure to their husband or not, after the impurity, the nida. He was going to a war, fighting like every other soldier. Like the generals, they go to the war, they actually fight, they risk their life, they are the first one who runs to the battle. What kind of, what kind of kingdom did he have? Nothing. He didn't enjoy the kingdom like the kings today eating good, traveling, having private jets, this, that, playing sports, everyone does everything for them, they can get up whatever they want. He didn't have this kind of life. Besides learning Torah, he was sleeping half an hour a day. In the entire 24 hours, half an hour a day. He was going to sleep 11.30 at night, putting his violin. At midnight, some wind starts. It moves the violin, the stick of the violin. It makes some noise, he gets up. There was no alarms. So they had a primitive alarm. You put the, they knew, they, had, they knew usually the wind starts around that time. It moves the, the how do you call the stick the, 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 of the violin? The bow? Oh. The bow, the bow. So the bow, 
Like bow and arrow? Yeah. Ah, okay, great. Yeah. Ah, we're learning, Baruch Hashem. So, okay, so they put it, and he makes some noise, and he gets up. Chatzot Laila Akum Laodot. It's in the Teilim. Every midnight, you know Hashem, that I get up to, to thank you. For what? For being a servant of the entire nation. I was learning, I was serving the community, fighting in a war, doing surgeries to his soldiers, all kinds of things he did. Nothing like the kings of today. In the end, he still couldn't build the Bet HaMikdash, but he prepared the foundation. And his son, Shlomo, now, when he was, when he sent Uriah Chitit to the war, and he took Batsheva. Batsheva was supposed to be his soulmate. But Uriah Chiti was Moret Bamalchut. What does it mean, Moret Bamalchut? Rebel against the king. When you rebel against the king, you must be executed. You cannot stay alive. Even if the king wants to forgive you, it's going to be a bad sign to the people. Oh, look at this guy. He rebelled against the king. And uh, the king forgave him. Tomorrow you have 3,000 people do the same. It's going to become an epidemic. The king has to be always strong, and it's the respect to the kingdom, not to the individual human being. Same thing a rabbi. If a father forgives his respect, it's acceptable. Uh, you can sit in his chair, you can in interrupt when he, when he speaks. It's not a sin because he forgave his, his dignity, his respect. But if a rabbi forgives his respect, it's not forgiven. You know, you still have to respect him because he's a representative of Hashem. He speaks the words of Hashem. Even if forgive his respect, you still have to give him all the respect of the Torah. Rav shemachal al kvodo en kvodo machul. So it's a big thing. Why? You don't respect him for his beautiful white beard or the huge yamaka that he has or whatever he has. No. You respect the knowledge of the Torah. It's nothing to do with him individually. If he's very, very smart in math, you don't owe him any, any respect. He's a great scientist. You don't owe him any respect. He's a very nice-looking person. Don't owe him any respect. His father was the biggest chacham in the world. Don't owe him any respect. He knows a lot of Torah, even if he's a mamzer. He's a mamzer. He cannot marry ordinary people, only one like him, illegitimate person. Still, he's coming before Kohen Gadol, the biggest Kohen in the world that goes inside Kodesh HaKodeshim. If he knows more Torah than him, he comes before him. You know? Today, really, technically, the halacha is that if you have in a synagogue a mamzer, a boy that his mother cheated on his father and went with another man and became pregnant. So she's pregnant from another Jewish man who is not her husband while she was married to another man. Horrible sin, worse than a murder, and women don't understand what kind of sin is this. And this illegitimate boy was born, and he cannot marry anyone besides someone like him with the same status. But if he's a big chacham, he comes before the Kohen. So now in a synagogue, you say, yeah, Kohen, Yamod, Kohen, somebody's Kohen in a synagogue that doesn't know that much Torah. And this Mamzer knows a lot of Torah. You have to give Aliyah to the Mamzer. Today they don't do it, because first, nobody knows who's a Mamzer. They're all hiding. <laughs> if you want to know who's a Mamzer, you go to Israel. They have a list in a computer of a few thousands of them, unfortunately, that people reported them. Some of them don't even know they're in a black list until the day they come to get married. But the day they come to get married, they say, well, we're very sorry. Someone testified that your mother uh, became pregnant when your father was in a prison uh, across, this, uh, across the ocean, 
and there's no way your father could have been, and they testified that she was with this man. And they actually saw the whole thing. Camera, it's not good. It's not a testimony. Two witnesses. Bank of a sperm, it's not a mamzer, unless there's some unique situation. If the woman is single and she couldn't get married, and uh, she received a donation of sperm for an anonymous person, the boy is legitimate Jew. If she was a married woman, there's big arguments between the chief rabbis in the world. According to one opinion, the boy is a mamzer, illegitimate, because she's a married woman, and she had no permission to conceive from another sperm of another man while she's married to a person, even if her husband is barren, cannot have children. There's no permission to receive donation of a sperm from any other man. The other opinion is no. It's the boy is still kosher. Why? Because the Torah meant that a married woman should not cooperate in an actual uh, sexual relationship with another man while she's married to another, to another man. And that's how the Torah meant to conceive, not by a donation with uh, some scientist, doctors who does it in a laboratory. But since there is a doubt, we will not know the answer until Mashiach comes. You have to be a fool to take such a risk. You bring a boy to the world, then you, one day you die, and Hashem says, the boy is a mamzer, what are you going to do? So it's, a, it's a horrible thing. That's why they don't allow it. They don't allow, they don't ex, they don't allow married women to receive donations. But if she cheated and she did it anyway, we will know when Mashiach comes, if the boy is legitimate or not. We don't know. Usually the mamzerim, the people who die young, they die, the people who are illegitimate boys, when no one knows about them, they die young before they get married, because Hashem doesn't want to multiply the number of the mamzerim and the nation of Israel. Because the Torah says, A mamzer, an illegitimate boy, cannot be a part of the nation of God, which means they are excluded. Now you may ask me, but they are not the one who committed the sin. Why do they have to pay for their mother's sin? The answer is, they are also guilty, but not in this life. They are guilty from previous life. This is black souls that made a lot of sexual sins in their previous life. And they did probably another sin with a married woman in their previous life. They went with a married woman. Now they get paid measure for measure. What you did in your previous life, now you're going to feel. Usually all the punishments are educational punishment. When you feel what you did to others, then you feel the pain. Like you stole 100, you have to pay 200. Because you have to return the hundred, plus they take away from you a hundred. Now you feel what you wanted to do to another person, right? Eye for an eye, you know, all these things that the Torah says, hand for an end, all these things. This is all educational punishment. So going back to what I said, so if it's a single woman and she received this kind of now, sometimes it's a mix between Jews and non-Jews. So for a woman, anyway, the boy will be Jewish. Even if the sperm came from a goy, the boy, the boy still would be Jewish because when the boy is born from a Jewish mother, at that moment that he comes to the air of the world, Hashem puts a Jewish soul inside. The soul enters the body in a few installments. One in the day that she conceived. If a man and a woman was tonight, so tonight she became pregnant, the first part of the soul enters tonight. The second part enters 40 days later, when the entire creation of this baby is completed. 
if to be male or female or whatever, that's another part. Then another part goes in in the time of birth. And if it's a boy, another part goes in the eight days in the time of a circumcision, when they name him. So there are a few parts who goes in constantly. Another part goes when he says first words. When the first sentence comes out of his mouth, two, three words. And so we see there are a few things. And there's also a part who comes every day and leaves. When we go to sleep, he comes back in a shachrit prayer. When he says, Baruch Hashem So, you know, I, the Kabbalists who are experts in these things, they can tell you exactly how it's been done. But I'm just generally speaking, so we see that it comes. So now, uh, you know, even though the boy is Jewish, everyone wants to know who the father is. Why? I'll tell you why. Because if, you don't, if they don't tell you, it could be a coin. The boy is a coin, and you don't even know about it. And no, people don't give him the respect that a coin deserves. Right? So that's a problem. If he's a levy, same thing. Same thing. If he's a goy, there's also some restrictions apply. So there's things, you know, or if, the, if a mamzer donated sperm, how do you know? Maybe an illegitimate boy became an adult, and he decided to do a righteous act, and he donated his sperm to some bank of sperm, and then this Jewish woman received that sperm, and the boy is a mamzer, because he came from a mamzer, and you don't know about it. And one day he's going to marry a woman, and all the children will become Amzerim. It can be hundreds of generations. It's a chain reaction that never stops. That's why it's very dangerous. So if the bank tells you from where the spell comes, they can give you a name of a person, and you know who it is. Plus, you have to also be worried about sicknesses and other things, which I believe they check today. I don't know if they check everything, but I'm sure they are more careful than before. Bottom line, it's very, very risky. It's today, some women that uh, they already become older and they're married, but they cannot have children, so they allow them that the the that the the men can freeze some of his sperms that later, like enough for her to conceive in a later age, but since it doesn't happen naturally. Then they do it artificially by going to specialists in labs and things like this. And that's not called wasted seed because it was done for a purpose of be bringing a boy to the world. Even though not everyone agrees with that, but you're not, in halacha, in a law, not everything is black and white. There are some gray areas. Remember, we don't know. Hashem didn't come and tell us one billion answer to every little questions that we have today. We have technology today, we have things that we're not sure. So, but we know one rule. Whenever there is a doubt about the mitzvah from the Torah, that the, the mitzvah comes from the actual Torah, one of the 613 laws, we cannot take risk. We have to go to the extreme side, to the strict side. We don't know if 50-50, we either cannot take risks. When it's a rabbinical law, we can be more lenient. Why? Because after all, the purpose of the rabbis who making all their laws was to assist us, not to hurt us. So let me give you an example. Even though, sir, let's say Muktzeh on Shabbos, you cannot touch Muktzeh. You cannot move electronic device. You cannot touch a remote. You cannot do certain things. Why? Maybe you use it. Maybe you use it. But what happens if it's to serve a sick person? So when they made the law of Muktzeh, they wanted to help us to reserve Shabbat better, to keep Shabbos better. But they never had an intention that the sick person would suffer more because of their laws. 
So they make an exception to the rule. No, we're not talking someone that his life is in a risk. Someone is life in a risk, everyone can do even a sin from the Torah for him, such as driving or lighting fire or doing any kind of thing to save his life. We are talking rabbinical laws. Rabbinical laws that create suffering to people, there's an exception to the rule. If it's for the public, in a synagogue, in yeshiva, everyone is suffering, uh, the light went off, things like this, then you're allowed to call the goy and ask him to turn the lights on. For an individual, no. But for the, for the public, yes. So you see, for mitzvah de rabim, there's an exception to the rule. If you don't know all the laws, you sometimes suffer for no reasons. When you don't know the laws, you always have to go to the strict side. But when you know the laws, life becomes a lot easier. Many times I tell people, include my wife, don't worry, it's allowed. They look at me like this. How can it be it's allowed? Everyone in the world, for, since we remember ourselves, say it's not allowed. Why? Because everyone is ignorant. And everyone copy from everyone. And nobody really went and checked. They only checked, they knew that it's perfectly fine. The minhal becomes the halakha. Yeah, you know, so sometimes people are very strict with things that, are, that there's no place to be strict. And when things that it's really important to be strict, they do every minute. They violate. Why? Ignorance. Ignorance. Ignorance has a very heavy price tag. Yes? In English. Oh, yeah. The rabbi said, it, it doesn't have so much to do with what we, right now we're speaking, but he said it before. It's a question I had. In Rosh Hashanah, the, everything is signed. Like the next year, everything that's going to be. Yes, like, yes. Um, so, what's the whole thing with Oshana Rabbah? Like, what's the importance of it? We write before it, so maybe. Oshana Rabbah, you know, let's break it that way. Rosh Hashanah is the judgment day. Right. Yom Kippur, it's a day of repentance. Call it, in our days, appeal. It's an opportunity to appeal. Oshana Rabbah, it's a second appeal. If the second, if Yom Kippur appeal didn't work out, still have time to correct until the night of Oshana Rabbah. That's when the executions are starting. Which means if a person has to die from now on until the end of the year, and the angel of, ge of death receive an order that in that particular day has to take the soul of that individual, then there's an opportunity to cancel that decree by staying up all night in Oshana Rabbah and learn Torah, you know? But if a person count on Oshana Rabbah and he did nothing in the month of Elul, nothing in the 10 days of Tshuva, nothing, and then he wait on Oshana Rabbah to be saved, if he gets saved or not, you know, the chances are not so high. Someone who did a lot, not perfectly, still can count on Oshana Rabbah to still save him. But if you count on that without doing anything up to that, probably you missed the train already. So what I wanted to read to you is, first day of Sukkot, which we just had a few days ago, we read what I always mention in my lecture, Zachary 14, the most horrible prophecy in the entire Tanakh perhaps by any other prophets ever lived. I don't think there's any prophecy that is more scary and severe than this prophecy. Zachary 14, Zacharia Yudalet. That's basically a description of the end of the world and how it's going to be. However, the good news is that every bad decree or prophecy or curse or anything like, or punishment in the Torah doesn't have to happen. It's only conditional if the people, mainly the Jewish people, will not repent, 
when Hashem decides, He will execute based on this prophecy. Right? But maybe it's a... Yeah. So if, if, if the people will not repent when the time of this prophecy will come, then the prophecy will start, the bad prophecy. But if the people repent even an hour before, even 10 minutes before, everyone will start screaming to Hashem, save us, help us, and they, and they, they, they return everything they stole, and they accept to keep Shabbat, and they accept to be modest, etc. Even minutes before, just the fact that everyone really in their heart and their mind accepting to become righteous, it can prevent everything, or delay, or postpone, or put it on hold for a period of time to check. Like the, when Hashem sent Yonah to Nineveh, Yonah the prophet, John the prophet, so he, he gave them a 40 days trial period. He's saying, 40 days your place will be destroyed. And 40 days they repent. And the Torah says in the end that Hashem saw that they changed their bad deeds and their bad acts. And because of that, Hashem forgave them. And all the decree that was ready for them was all dismissed. Most people don't know that two years later, they went back to their evil way and Hashem destroyed them in the end, this goyim of Nineveh. But if they stay righteous, the decree was dismissed for good. But they went back to their evil way. Chazal used the expression like a dog who vomits and then later returns to his vomit and eat it. This is how we behave sometimes. We promise, we'll keep, we'll do, we'll give, we'll do Hashem, we will, we will, we will. Two months later, one week later, Yom Kippur, we forgot all the tshuva and return right back to the scene as usual. That's like a dog who now vomits. A minute after he vomits, he is not eating. But an hour later, he's hungry, he returns to eat what he just vomits. So what's the, it's like a, like a cycle. What's the point here? Okay, so uh, this is now. So this is Zachary 14. Describe the end of the world. There will be a time, nobody will see light, there will not be light. Two-thirds of the people in the world will die, people's eyes will melt, people will try to save each other from drowning and their hands will fall apart. Horrible things. Horrible things. And then all the nations would gather against Israel, as we see we are very close to it already, with the help of our dear friend Obama, you know, that helps a lot, that United States slowly, slowly, slowly but surely, not only not, be, not staying a friend of Israel, already acting as a major enemy of Israel. Why? It's, on, it's a one man, one man. But uh, I just, somebody just sent me an email of a Jewish girl. She made it. There's already a million views to it. So in a movie, she shows all the speeches of Obama before he got elected, while he was in office for the last four years and all the recent statements, how every one of his statements was reversed, contradicted. We have to defend Israel now. Jerusalem is the undoubtable capital of Israel. Now they refuse to say it. Now they say it's open to negotiation. Every one of his promises, well, all a lie. So obviously now he's trying to be very nice to the Muslim world, and every fool see that the Muslim world take advantage on it. Not only are they not becoming more soft and more polite, and they forget about their dream to destroy the United States and Israel, they're actually becoming more angry and more arrogant 
and more violent. And now the, in, the, in every Arab country, openly they, they scream to the destruction of Israel and the United States. It's not one day they don't they burn the Israeli or the American flags. Egypt now became a very radical, fanatic Muslim country, which is leaded by a person that is nothing better than Ahmadinejad. Don't ever dream that he's better. Right now he's still limited. He didn't complete taking control on the army, which is secular. Remember, the, the Muslims fanatics and the secular Muslims are enemies, just like the enemies with the Jews and the Americans. So in Turkey, the Muslim took over. This crazy Erdogan took control of the army and knocked down all the secular Turkish to the garbage. Now it just happened in Egypt. He took away all the power from the army generals, and many of them were put in jail. Slowly, slowly, it's going to become like another Iran. And the same thing in Libya, and the same thing in Tunisia, and the same thing soon is going to happen in Morocco. Now in Jordan, King Hussein surrendering to the Muslim. Today he announced that all the politicians of Jordan are all gone to the garbage. They're going to make a re-election. And of course, the Muslims, Palestinians, are taking over Jordan. Syria, I don't have to tell you what's happening over there. Iraq is cooperating with Iran, sending weapons to Syria every hour, so you cannot count on them. So there's not one normal Muslim country left. With the help of Obama, I was trying to help to be nice with them. We are very close to these days of the prophets, right? 30 years ago, when Reagan was the president, or Ford, or all these other presidents, Truman, nobody thought that the United States would cooperate with Muslims against Israel. How can it be? We share the same ideology. We both against murders, against terrorism, against all these things. We are supposedly democratic for human rights. We want to give rights to women, supposedly, right? It's all talking. Nobody has democracy, not in Israel and not in the United States, and not in Russia. Russia declared the end of communism. They try to be democratic. Do you really dream there's democracy in Russia? You know, so few girls spoke against the president and put them two years in prison. Where is the freedom of speech? It's only the freedom of speech if they are in a mood to allow you. One person scream against Obama, they leave him alone. Another one scream against him, he's in jail, the FBI won't leave him for one minute. They bug his phone, oh, it's a potential terrorist. Every one of us, when you speak on the phone, don't ever be sure that you are 100% sure. Just he says that your passport is from, that you're from the Middle East, include Israel. They have the rights now. It's very, very, oh. It's a potential terrorist. They can listen to every beep you make. Through satellites, they see even your PIN number when you go to the, into the ATM. They know everything about you. They can put the, the detectors in your cell phone, in your car, even when your cell phone is off. Even you put your cell, off, cell phone off, if the FBI wants, they know exactly where you are. You can sit somewhere in a bathroom in a hotel, they know exactly what you are. You can, uh, anything you do, every email you send, everything they read, there's no free, there's no democracy here. After the twins collapse, if there was any democracy, it's over now. Now they have a free hand, they can do whatever they want. As long as they say the war terrorism. Oh, there's a potential terrorist. Right away, they don't need a, not only the judge to sign on their order, nothing. They, can, they have freedom to do whatever they want. You understand? So democracy really doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Maybe in Australia, maybe in New Zealand. Countries that don't have supposedly terrorists, what reason they have to violate free, uh, human rights. But every other country, like in Europe, now look at France. France became totally Muslims now. 
There are ghettos in France that the French police cannot enter. Now they're not there to enter. You know, they now made in Israel, as there's one Israeli speak perfect Arabic person made a series now of he's going to France and he pretend he's Muslim and he interview Arabs and he pretend he's one of them, sits with the Hamas, with the Hezbollah terrorists, sits with them, they don't know he's Jewish, Israeli. And by the way, he's becoming Baal Tshuva now. He's already, he's already skipping mitzvot, Shabbat. Yeah, Tzvi Echeskel is his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and a Jewish guy, Israeli guy, speaks on the news in Israel. Baruch Hashem is lucky that none of them ever watch Israeli television. All it needed that they see one of them ever watch news in Israel, they know he's on the news every night. But he grew up a beard, he looks like a real Muslim, he put this uh, special Muslim hat, and he goes, they speak perfect Arabic, they cannot tell that he's an Israeli Jew. That's how good he's in Arabic. And he's, he's listening to their dream to destroy everyone, not only Israel, United States, France, they want to take over Europe. They'll never rest until they destroy every non-Muslim person in the world. They'll go to Australia, they'll go to New Zealand, they'll go to Canada. If they occupy the whole world and there will be some tiny property in the end of the world somewhere that people are still not Muslim, they'll go there to destroy them. That's how Islam started, that's how he would die. It will only be on the power of the sword. If you know a little bit how it started with Muhammad and the sword, it's, it's never going to change. So uh, this is the prophecy that we read in Sukkot. Why? Because according to our uh, tradition, it will happen on Sukkot, this Gogu Magog thing. So if it didn't happen now, maybe we have an extension of one more year. Then the second one was, going back to what I wanted to speak about, King Solomon is opening the Beta Mikdash for the first time. On this, of the Aftarah of Shmini Atzeret that we're going to read in two, three days, we're going to read that King Solomon sacrificed many, many sacrifices in Bet HaMikdash. A value, I calculated, of $146 million. If it would be today, day, no? No, in one day, in one day, there's no room on the altar. The altar is very big. It's very big. It's not a little tiny table. There's a small altar and a very big ramp that is, looks like, a, like, a, like an entire tennis court almost. That's how big it is. They sacrifice one after the other. Not one person, many, many, constantly, one after the other. All together, a worth of $146 million based on the $300 price of a goat or a sheep. That's what more or less what a goat costs and $5,000 for a big cow. Cow, if you buy a cow and you slaughter it and you sell it in a butcher, it's $20,000 profit. It's lots of steak, every tiny piece. Every little uh, piece of meat this size, $15. How many pieces like this you have in a cow? After getting rid of the skin, the bones and everything, you have hundreds, hundreds of steaks. And then the ribs, and the bones, even a piece of bone, little tiny bone with no meat on it, they sell for six dollars for the soup, marrow bone, whatever the name of it. All kinds of things. The brain. In some countries, they sell the brain. The brain, very expensive. You know, all kinds of things. The eyes. Some people eat the eyes. The eyes of the goat. In my own eyes, I saw one person where we put the head of the goat in Rosh Hashanah. Some people put fish, some people put goat. One primitive guest that I had in my house, 
dig the, the eye out, it's, it's delicious. <laughs> I was sick for two days after I saw it. <laughs> well. uh, you know, having a guest is a huge reward. If you're having a lot of guests, then you understand why Hashem was so generous with the reward. Every person has something about him. Like in Hebrew, they say, Everyone has a scratch somewhere else in his disc. One person, non-stop smoking, send you the smoke from the window right into your living room. Yom Tov. Yom Tov is allowed. So he prepares a big candle he brings from home. How can he be two days without smoking? Ah, God forbid. He put it somewhere in your house. And every time he lights a cigarette, he has 10 steps until he leaves your house, so the entire house is stink. And people who don't smoke, even a week later, they smoke it. It's all over. He doesn't smell it. But so that's one. And now, if you have 15 guests like this, and half of them are smokers, basically your entire Yom Tov is inside an ashtray. That's what he did. Then another person, his nose is stuffed. So every two minutes, he becomes an elephant. He's blowing the shofar, but from <laughs> instead of his mouth, he blows the shofar from his nose. And you have, you have, a, you have a Beethoven and Mozart, stereo, one from the right, one from the left, and of course then you have a piles of tissue on your table. And, and of course, usually then five minutes later they forget to clean it. So every year you go, you have piles of tissue in a shul next to you, then on the floor, in the sukkah, in the kitchen, you know. <laughs> and you know, and, uh, and some of them likes to drink. The biggest mistake is to bring them maybe a little bit whiskey or wine. The next thing they is drunk. And then some of them don't have manners and they ask intimate questions. Bottom line, there's a very heavy price to pay. So therefore, even if you have five maids, believe me, it's not so easy. So what happened in the end? Hashem is generous. He knows how much you have to sacrifice. You understand? So... Now let's read, let's finish, and then I'll give you some times for question. Let's read where the source of Hanukkah Tabayit come from. It come from the book of Kings, Melachim Aleph, chapter 8. Melachim, Kings, is divided to two halves, part 1, part 2. We are talking in part 1, chapter 8. Vaikalu al-Amelech Shlomo, King Solomon gathered the entire nation. is opening the first temple in the history. This is 300 years after they entered the Holy Land, after they came out of Egypt. 300 years there was no temple. They have a temporary temple in the desert, but since they occupied Israel and they went in, 300 years there's no temple yet. And King Solomon is opening a temple now. No, So, in the seventh month, which is the month of, the, of, of uh, Tishrei, everyone came, ויסעו הכהנים את אהרון, ויעלו את אהרון השם. אוקיי, so you know, depend, on a seventh month, it's depend where you're counting. There's two different counts. There's Rosh Hashanah for the kings, Rosh Hashanah for taxes, Rosh Hashanah for the trees, Rosh Hashanah for, all, for, 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 the, for the holidays. And there's Rosh Hashanah, two different Rosh Hashanah. So we're talking now the seventh month, Nisan, beginning of Nisan, that's the Hanukkah Tabayit. So, all the chief rabbis of Israel came first, as it should be. And all the Kohanim carried the ark. Okay? They bring the ark of God. And 
El the tent, oil moed, the tent, the temporary tent that they carried until now, and all the holy utensils that they made, all the special holy things that they have in supposed to come enter Bet HaMikdash, and the Levites, and the Kohanim, and King Solomon, everyone is sacrificing, sacrifices, sheep and cows that cannot be counted. Cannot be counted. There's no way to count them so much. Can't even count. But Hashem told us in the Tanakh how many in the end there were. And we're going to read it in the second part of Sukkot, which is the end of Sukkot. They brought the Ark of Hashem to the place. And they started to put everything in its place. Like we bring our furniture into the house. You put this here, this, that. That's how they started. Right? This is after he mentioned the name of his father David and the door finally opened up. It's called Hanukkah Abayit. Right? And they put the two boards, the two boards, and... Uh, the boards? The boards, the commandments. Uh-huh. Yes. And the house got full of the cloud of Hashem. Every time Hashem comes to this world, it comes in a cloud come in a cloud. As you look at that, you only see a cloud. You don't really see any image. But the cloud is a signal that here I came. So it's a combination of two things. First, there is an announcement that the prophet or a a holy king said that Hashem will come in this day. So everyone is ready for the event. Like they accepted the Torah. Everyone was waiting already three days for the event around Mount Sinai. Everyone was prepared. So the cloud is coming. You know when it's going to come. Then usually it comes with, when we receive the Torah, it comes with the voice of Shofar, the floor is shaking, and then, then finally you hear the voice of God. But it doesn't have to be. Not always you hear the voice of God or Shofar or the, or the floor is shaking. And not always you see fire. Like you see in Mount Sinai, you have all the symptoms, all the signals. But it's enough that there you know that in that particular date, Hashem is coming down on the world, and you see the cloud, and that's it. Okay, so... The entire Bet HaMikdash is full from a cloud. Inside the house, which is a very, very glorious, beautiful place. And then King Shlomo says, Baniti bait. I create, I build a house for you, Hashem. As the Torah says, build me a house to tighten the connection between me and you, that you come, because the nature of a human being, if he doesn't do something physically, it's very hard for him to feel the spirituality. That's why we do all kinds of things, tefillin, talit, all kinds of things, lulav, sukkah, it's all, actu- it's all involved with actual doing something. Just, just in the mind and in words, it's not enough for us to feel spiritual. Right? So it says, and he gave a blessing to the entire nation of Israel, and everyone was standing. So what we learn from here, when the Torah comes out, when Hashem comes down, everyone has to rise. From here we learn that when a rabbi comes in, you also have to rise. Or a big judge, not in a secular court. The judge in a secular court, most of them doesn't worth a penny and a half. Uh, most of them are wicked people. They make sins every minute of their life. Most of them are not honest. I know a few honest ones. I'm not saying everyone is bad. Some of them are very honest. But even the honest ones that are good human, pe- human beings and decent people who follow the laws, don't follow the laws of God. They violate the, lo- the laws of God and they're murdering people in their courtroom every day. Because remember, I spoke about it in the past. 
just the fact that they follow the constitution that were made by wicked people who didn't care about the Torah or God. So they are forced to participate in a corrupted system. Which means if a person stole $100 because his children was hungry, they send him five years to prison. That's not what God wants. God wanted this person to pay a fine. And you know what would happen in a Beidin in the old days? When the judge, when a, poor, when a rich person sued, the landlord sued the tenant because he couldn't pay rent, the judge must rule for the one who is right, which is the rich t- landlord. And, he has the, and the tenant has to vacate the apartment. And many judges, they have to do what the Torah say. The Torah say, don't, don't favor the poor automatically. You have to say what's the truth, whether it's painful, whether it's not. Many of the judges went after the verdict against the poor people and paid their rent. So I ruled against you because I have no choice. That's what Hashem said to do in the Torah. Let me give you a donation. Here's a thousand dollars. Go pay the, the bill. Or they raise money for them by calling some of the friends. This person, I just ruled against him. And even today it's like this. Many places in the Bedin, you come, the judge has mercy on you. But he cannot go against the rules. But today, what does he care? He rule. what does the Constitution say? He, he can send the father of children to the jail. The children's lives will be destroyed for $100. Why? Because he's tall, because he didn't have bread. You understand? So well, I have to go by the rules. There's a minimum, there's a maximum. Or someone, uh, you know, I always give this example. Someone told you what stock to buy. So you took uh, $10,000, you bought some stocks, and it became $30,000. The next day, the FBI comes and says, oh, how did you know an hour before to buy? They check your computer, they check your phone. Oh, you have a friend that works in Wall Street. He told you which stock to buy. Six years in prison, $10 million fine. Take away everything you have. So this is against the Torah. The Torah is, is reasonable, logical. Torah say what punishment suits what sin. But these judges, even if they decent people, even if they mean well, every day they murder people, every day multiply by 34 years of their career, their punishments when they die are the biggest in the entire world. There's a very heavy price for the honor that they get when people rise for them, or when they have bodyguards, and when everyone wants to be near them, and they invited to be with the president and the politicians and all these fancy schmancy things that they have. I'm, I'm talking, assuming they're not receiving bribes and all kinds of other benefits. Talking the decent ones, which they are the minority in all the countries in the world. There's, for instance, in the Arab countries, is a well-known thing. Now no one even hiding it. You want to buy the judge, just offer the bribe. That's all. In India, in Pakistan, in Egypt, in Turkey, it's all bribe. You have enough money to bribe the judges. No one does anything about it. It's a way of life already. Like the Arab mentality, it's all built and created based on lies. No one is embarrassed if you get caught lying or cheating or all kinds of things. It's all about lies. Like they said, the temple wasn't there. The Jews never owned Israel. They, they can lie about things that the whole world knows. It's a, the Western world is not a part of the Beit HaMikdash. The, uh, Yitzhak uh, wasn't the one that Avram took to the Akedah, it was Ishmael. Whatever they want to say, they say they don't care. God left the Jews after the, the, sin, of the, golden, uh, after the sin of the golden calf. Whatever they want to say, they say the entire culture, everyone knows it's a lie. All the politicians constantly lie in CNN, changing facts, changing history, forging things, uh, hiding everything they can. No, but no, it's a way of life. Way of life. 
the Torah, we in our school, I'm not saying there are not Jews who lies. There are plenty of Jews who lies. There are plenty of Jews who deceive and steal, and they receive bribes. We know it. But is that the education system? Is the education system teach to lie? No. Torah forbid it. And the, and the rabbis in yeshiva, every one of them is teaching the children, you be very careful to stay away from lies. And if you get lie, you get punished. And your father are called to school. You have a problem with your son. He's lying. He's using a lie as a way out. Or he touched things without permission. That's a very big deal in our schools. In a, in a religious school, not the secular school. The secular school, the teacher can steal away your pen. Then look, you can put it in his pocket and steal it. Yes, that's what happened. He can cheat, he can steal, he can park in a parking that did not belongs to him. He can do whatever he wants. Bottom line, in a kosher yeshiva, kosher yeshiva, because some yeshivot are not kosher, in a kosher yeshiva, they teach according to the Torah. If the people keep or not, most people try to keep. They, they care. They don't want their children to be liars. I remember one time I, I drove Rabbi Greenwald to visit someone in a hospital in Manhattan, and he's a world expert for children, raising children. And I asked him, what, what problems that the children have we should make a big deal, and what problems we should ignore? So this is what he told me. He told me things that will go away with growing up. Once they mature, they automatically would stop to do it because this is the way of life. Don't make an issue out of it. For instance, if your son jump on a table and the table broke, it's no big deal. Right now he's five years old, he's like a monkey. Give him five more years, he's going to be mature, he understands. You don't stand on a table and, and jump. This is not a reason to punish him or to make a big deal. You can talk to him, ask him not to do it. You know, you can give him small minor punishment, but don't make a big deal out of it. But two things, you must make a huge deal out of it. Because that's the entire personality of a person will get destroyed. Lying and stealing, that's not going to go away. It's only going to grow and become more sophisticated. Lying and stealing, you never give up. You brainwash them 100% again and again and again. And you're talking to them and you're begging them and you're punishing them. Whatever you do, just the kids will know, oh, you know what, just don't do these two things. This is our culture based on the Torah. Most of the world don't care about lying. Do you know any religion that if someone lies is a criminal? What do you want? He lied. Okay, big deal. Next time, don't lie. You're only, you're only a liar if you lie to a judge in a court and they caught you. But if you lie out of the court, you can write a book. It's all fiction, all lies, all things. Nobody does freedom of speech. But in the Torah, it's a big sin. The, the Torah didn't say don't lie. The Torah says stay away from lies. Stay away from liars. Don't be friendly with liars. Don't be partner with liars. Don't marry a liar. Stay away from liars. This is cancer in, inside your life. That's the, that's the rule of the Torah. And we do as much as we can to follow it. And usually lying and stealing goes together. It's like a husband and wife. Sometimes the wife comes first, sometimes the husband. But don't worry, they'll show up, one way or the other. Yeah, it's stealing. Usually, after you steal, you begin to lie. Where were you? I wasn't here. Here, you bribe this guy, alibi, bring false witnesses. You know, one thing leads to another. All right, so the, the, the point is, so he says King Solomon is blessing the entire nation, and he says, bless God, the God of Israel, 
Remember, it's everywhere in the Tanakh, the name of Hashem is the God of Israel. It's never ever mentioned that he's the God of another nation. Of course, he's the God of all the nations, and he judged them as much, for good and for bad. But he never agreed to call himself the God of the United States, or the God of China, or the God of Egypt, or the God of Palestine. Only the God of Israel. And in Hebrew, we say, Amevin Yavin. You gotta be clever and understand it. And I have many Gentiles who understand just from that who you should respect, who you should love, who you should help. That's why they say, you know what, even if naturally I was brainwashed against the Jews, now when I understand that this is the nation of God and he called himself the God of Israel, how can I be against his children? I only go against myself. I go against his children, he's gonna go against my children. What's the point? Every normal person should understand that. So, God, so this is the words of King, of King Solomon. Bless God, the God of Israel, that say his words through the mouth of my father David and fulfill his promises. From the day I took my nation out of Egypt, I did not create any city to build a house except this city. What? The city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's where I, that's where I put my name on. That's why I, where I chose to have my house there, and that's where I'm commanding my nation from there, from the nation of, from the city of Jerusalem. Vayim levav David Avi, he was supporting the heart of my father David to build a house for the sake of God, the God of Israel. And he said to my father David, I know that you wished very much in your heart to build a house for me, it's very welcome, your wishes for me. But you couldn't build a house. Why? Because of the reason I mentioned before. Your son, by your biological son, that came out of you, he will build the house for my name. And Hashem fulfilled his word as he promised. And here I am sitting on the chair of my father David as God promised. And, and I built, I completed the building of the house for God, for the God of Israel. And today I'm entering the ark into its place and completing the covenant that God made with our fathers, taking us of Egypt. So in the entire thing is like a finishing a circle. Finally we came, because when we came out of, the, uh, out of Egypt, we came to receive the Torah, we came to receive Eretz Israel and to build Bet HaMikdash. That was the goals. So we came out of Egypt, we received the Torah, we entered to Eretz Israel and occupied it, but there was no Bet HaMikdash. That's the fourth wheel in a car. Three wheels cannot get you anywhere. We finally completed our mission, so it was a very, very holy and special happy day. And now, in what we're going to read in Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of Sukkot, remember what I said before, this is when King Solomon finished his prayers and blessings. He bowed down in front of God, and his hand was up, open, split open towards the heaven. And he stood up, he was bowing down on his knees, he got up on his legs and blessed the entire nation of Israel, and this is what his words were. Baruch Hashem, bless God, Asher natan menucha la'amo Yisrael, that blessed the nation of Israel. 
ככל אשר דיבר, as he said, לא נפל דבר אחד מכל דברו הטוב אשר דיבר מיד משה עבדו. He did not miss one of his promises even. Everything got fulfilled. יהי אלוקינו עמנו, יהי השם אלוקינו, may God our God will be with us as he was with our fathers and will never leave us and will never abandon us and will always turn our heart to him to follow his ways, to keep his commandments as he order our fathers. And all these prayers that I'm saying today will be welcome in front of Hashem. ויהיו דברי אלה אשר התחננתי לפני השם, we say it on the prayers of Shabbat when we open the ark. יהיו לפני השם קרובים אל השם אלוקינו יומם ולילה לעשות משפט עבדו, משפט עמו ישראל דבר ביום ביומו. Hundreds of thousands of Jews say it every Shabbat. 99% of them don't know it's the words of King Solomon when he opened Bet HaMikdash. Telling you. Now it's an opportunity for all the people who would hear this lecture. Next time when you open it, what do we say? יהי שם אלוקינו עמנו, כאשר הם אבותינו, על יעזבנו ועל יתשנו, הושיעת עמך, all these things. Right? This is the words of King Solomon in חנוכת הבית. והיה לבבם שלם עם השם. Our hearts will be complete with God. To follow his words. And the king and the entire nation of Israel are sacrificing. How many? 22,000 cows. Multiply by $5,000 today, value of a cow. $110 million. And, and how many sheep? 120,000 sheep. Multiply by 336 million, altogether 146 million dollars. And they opened and they started. What's the right word in English to start something? Lachnoch, Hanukkah Tabait. How do you, do you have a right word? The great opening. The great opening. Grand opening. That's, that's really the right words, I think. It's not perfect, but. It gives the listeners an idea what I'm talking about. Grand opening of the first temple of God. And at that day, the king sanctified the entire Bet HaMikdash. Why? Because he wanted people to sacrifice in a holy place. So he sanctified the entire place. And everyone used the entire property over there because there's not enough room. So many thousands of sacrifices. He need room for it. Why? Because the size of the temple itself wasn't enough to have so many animals, right? And at that time, everyone celebrated the holiday together in Jerusalem, all, all the nation of Israel. And there was a huge crowd, millions of people, seven days, seven nights. And in the eighth day, he sent all of them back home. They all went to their homes, happy. Happiness, the highest level of happiness. And this is all the greatness who God did to his servant David and his servant Solomon. Same Solomon, which was the smarter person ever lived, and he became a king when he was 12 years old. And he had a dream, and in his dream, Hashem asked him, what do you want from me? Uh, you're becoming a king in a very young age, you're not even bar mitzvah yet. What are you asking me to do for you? And instead of saying that he wants revenge against all his enemies, the people who are trying, making him not be the king, 
about his stepbrother who was trying to take the, the kingdom away and started to bribe people to be to support him. You know, politicians. You know, Adonia his name was. So Adonia ben Chagit, he already made himself a carriage and soldiers, and his father David was, was dying, you know, was very old. And, uh, and the prophet came to him and said, do you know? And he said to his mother, Batsheva, mother of Shlomo, don't you see that they're stealing the kingdom from your son, as your husband David promised that he's going to take his place? The other one already is the son of Chagit, because King David have many wives. So the son of, he's already making himself a king. What's happening here? So I want you to go and speak to King David before he passed away and tell him what happened to your promise that you promised me that my son Shlomo Solomon will take your place. And just as you walk in, I will wait outside and I walk with you. And I will say to him, King, your majesty, what's happening? That's not, your will is not being fulfilled. And that's how King David swore and he nominated King Solomon to be the king. He was 12 years old. Then he had a dream, and Hashem said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Instead of saying, Taking care of, take care of all my enemies, destroy them, he said, give me a wisdom, the wisdom to always be a fair judge and judge your nation fairly. So God said to him, since you ask me something for the sake of the nation of Israel, and it's actually for my sake, for my sake of my children, and nothing personal for yourself, it shows you're not egoistic. I will give you everything you could have asked me. Wisdom, you'll be the smartest person ever live. Wealth, the wealth that he had is beyond any, any description. You cannot describe it. All the kings all over the world were begging to be his friends, bringing him precious gifts, all kinds of uh, uh, ivories. You know, the, 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 the teeth of the elephant is very expensive. They used to make fancy tables from life, very expensive, all kinds of artwork. All the women, all the princes from all over the world were begging to become his wives. And in the end, he violated two rules. He, had, he was overconfident with himself. The Torah say, you should, not, you should not marry more than 18 wives, maximum 18 <laughs> wives. <laughs> Only 18. I don't know if that's enough. <laughs> For a king. Only 18 wives. 18 wives maximum. All together. And he married 1,000 wives. Why? Because he said, the Torah said, because the women will drive you crazy. So it says like this. I know it won't affect me. The Torah already said the reason why not. I know it won't affect me. In that case, what happened? I can marry more. Why? I have a plan. I'm going to make all of them Jewish, convert them, teach them Judaism, send them back to their fathers, and the entire world would admire Judaism and realize to leave their idols. He had a good intention. So he failed in that because the last sentence about his life, Hashem, is a stain in his record for eternity. King Solomon died, but not before he did the bed in the eyes of God. Why? His women turned his heart away from God. The women, many of them brought their idol-worshipping culture from their countries. And they did all kinds of things behind his back, next to him. Couldn't control them. And in the end, it took away his heart. That's it. When you live with environment and society that are not so great, especially a wife in your own house, 
It's very difficult to stay righteous if she's not. And that's what happened to him. And one more thing, Hashem said not to have too many horses. In our days, if the Torah was given, Hashem would say not to have too many cars. Don't have a collection of Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Rolls Royce. Forget about it. Get a few cars that you need, you know, and that's it. Why? Because this is already becoming addicted, you know. So one, two things Hashem said not to do, and he did both. Why he did both? Because every other warning in the Torah, the Torah didn't say the reaction of it. The Torah said, do not eat pork. But the Torah didn't say what's going to happen to you if you eat pork physically or spiritually. The Torah didn't say it. The Torah said, you're not allowed to eat pork. The Torah said, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. But the Torah didn't say next to it what's going to be the reaction. What's the chain reaction of it? What's the outcome? Two places the Torah said, what's going to happen? And he said, oh, if that's what's going to happen, I know it won't happen to me. And it happened to him. The Gemara said that Rabban Gamliel, he, he knew the Mishnah, this Mishnah that we receive in Har Sinai, that a person should not learn Torah next to an oil, candle that is in oil. Why? Because he may not see well, and while he's inside the learning, he will tilt. Remember, it wasn't like candles that we have today. It was candles that are floating on top of olive, a container full of olive oil, and they put some you know, candles on top. And sometimes the oil doesn't observe well in a candle, so you, you may turn it, you put it diagonals, because you want the oil to come next to the candle, and that's improving the fire on Shabbat, which is a violation of Shabbat. Now, if you're aware, you're not going to do it. But if you're so deep in the learning and you don't see, automatically, instantly, you're going to do. So he said, I'm going to read, and I'm never going to do it. And in the end, he did it. So he said in a Gemara, when Bet HaMikdash will be built, that was after the destruction of the second temple, when the third temple will be built, I will be the first one who bring a sacrifice, Korban Chatat, as in not intentionally I violated Shabbat. One of the holiest rabbis ever lived. And it didn't happen in his time. And when the third Bet HaMikdash will be built, he's going to come back to life, because all the righteous Jews will return back to life. And he will have an opportunity to keep his promise, to bring the sacrifice. But in the meantime, so you see, so when the Torah, when the law shows you don't do ABC because that's what's going to happen to you, that's usually the, where the evil inclination begins to say, ah, come on, it won't really happen to you. Like somebody so holy, learns a lot of Torah, said, so don't go to the club of Manhattan. Why? You're going to end up with Christine over there. I'm going to end up with Christine, me in my beard like this, and I'm learning Torah for seven years in yeshiva, so my friends want to take me to a birthday party in a club in Manhattan, and it's like in a VIP, and I even go with my yarmulke. What's the chance that Christine would like even someone like me? That's the chance I'm going to even look at her. You know, I was so holy. What happened in the end? He's going to go there and almost guarantee Christine will come from all the people in the club to him. How are you, sir? Do you need any help? <laughs> Happy birthday. Yeah. Why? Because when he say, oh, I'm going to do, if that's the, that's the reason why the Torah said not to go there, I know it won't happen to me. My friend, you just invited a death sentence. <laughs> and that's what happened. All these people will think it won't happen to me. It's most likely will happen to them first. Bezrat Hashem, we finish. So now... The mezuzot here. Yeah, they're they were here already, or you brought them yourself? Checked, everything checked, everything good, very good. Now everyone will make brachot, 
it's good to have brachot. We had great shiur Torah. I hope it was great. I hope it was great. And uh, you remember about the custom of Hanukkah Tabayit. If somebody ever asks you, where, where do we know this? It comes from this. When they opened Bet HaMikdash, they did Hanukkah Tabayit. Invited everyone, make a big party, and they made a speech. Whatever they did, we did in a small manner, in a small way. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen ve'amen. <laughs>